Welcome to McKnight's Home Care Newsmakers podcast, where we share the latest information and views from industry leaders. Hello, this is Diane Esterbrook, staff writer for McKnight's Home Care Daily Pulse. Older adults who age in place with little social interaction are at risk of becoming socially vulnerable or socially frail. Social frailty has been linked to physical frailty and poor outcomes for seniors. I recently spoke to Stephen Norris, MD, Medical Director at Transitions Care, which offers end-of-life care, primary care, and symptom management. I started our conversation by asking him if there is a difference between social vulnerability and social frailty. I think they're probably intertwined in a certain sense. Um, Social vulnerability would be your relative education, family circumstances, advocacy, support, your ability for transportation, getting to and from places. And I think that frailty then sort of plays off of that in that if you don't have those things, then you become frail, would be my understanding. And is it related to to social isolation and loneliness, or is that something separate? Well, I think it certainly could be related to that. I think that that might be identified then as emotional frailty or emotional vulnerability. So I don't know that loneliness would necessarily be a direct correlation, but not having a good support system certainly would make you socially frail and maybe emotionally frail also and create that vulnerability. So from your perspective, if you see somebody who's socially frail or socially vulnerable, how does that affect their physical health? Well, certainly if you have some emotional frailty, that could affect your health. One of the things that we look at for a a clinical frailty would be, you know, the overall health of a person certainly involves the, you know, depression, anxiety, cognition, and things of that matter that will affect your health. You talked about cognition and depression. the only signs because I'm wondering you send a caregiver into a home are these things easily identified by a clinician or a home care worker that's going in to take care of you know an elderly person or an older adult for the most part it it just depends upon how bad the cognition has gotten so you know a lot of the things that we look at from a palliative care hospice or even primary care would be your ability to take care of yourself uh, and your surroundings. So um, if, if your surroundings have become in despair and you're not able to do anything about that, then it becomes a little bit more obvious. Um, if you're you know, severely cognitively impaired or you can't get up and move around, you can't uh, toilet yourself, bathe yourself, those things are obvious. If it's just a minor cognition that the person is still able to uh, compensate for, it may not be that obvious. Gotcha. What should the caregiver's role be in this? Should the caregiver alert the family physician? Should the caregiver alert a family member? Well, I mean, oftentimes the caregivers are family members. If they're paid caregivers that come in, then they would be obligated to report, you know, any sort of situation that would be unsafe. And whether that's 
you know, it just depends upon their family support and their structure and who they, who's their advocate is, you know, certainly letting that person know. Hopefully the caregiver would know who that was. Um, generally, they would have been hired by somebody. So I'm sure that the uh, most of those uh um, facilities that provide that care would have some sort of reporting mechanism or chain of command that they would go through, I would think. I don't know for sure. Somebody who might be socially vulnerable or frail, um, you know, we if somebody is not necessarily confined to their home, but they're aging in place, but they might have some activities of daily living that need to be addressed, how can this be mitigated? Is it a... Um, getting them out into the community or making sure that they have activities brought into them or they have, um, they're able to socialize maybe even virtually with somebody else? Um, so when you get into the activities of daily living, those are pretty basic needs. Um, if a person isn't able to do, you know, one or two or all of them, um, I would you know, for the most part, they're pretty frail. And so their ability to get out and about would be greatly limited, I would guess, for the most part, unless there is somebody that is able to, you know, get them out and about. Lots of times it would have to be a family member. Uh, and it just depends upon that family circumstances, whether they have time or the ability or their willingness to do that. Um, if it's a, you know, a spouse that might be the same age or in the same category, that becomes difficult because they may be struggling just to take care of themselves. Or you have to pay somebody to come in and do that. And so then it boils down to finances. In all of these situations and circumstances, there's a lot of um, factors and variables that go into what makes somebody frail or vulnerable and uh, what your, um, I guess your options are for mitigating those potential causes of frailty. Um, so for the most part, what I see is that people um, get caretakers to come in uh, if they don't have family members, but half the time it's not enough time and so um, that's when we see people begin to fail even further and then they end up in the hospital and nursing facilities does any kind of virtual intervention help there are a lot of programs out there or that connect seniors socially um, to you know groups like themselves does that help i i think that if the senior has the cognitive ability and the resources uh, and tools to do it and they're willing and wanting to do that, then I think it's, it's, just, it's an option to help them. Um, it, it would be dependent upon that person's um, personality and ability and desire to want to do that and learning how to do that sort of thing. Um, as I've done several virtual visits, the most successful ones that I have are with, with a telephone because if the people are struggling with their, a or their ADLs, they certainly are struggling with their IADLs. And one of the IADLs is just the ability to answer the phone and talk on the phone. I would guess that the virtual 
you know, video visit is a higher cognitive understanding of being able to operate a phone. So it sounds a little bit like it's important to make it, especially somebody who has cogni- is cognitively impaired, ease of use, a telephone, but a visit would help too, correct? If you're coming into the home and you're taking care of some of those activities of daily living, just spending some time with those people and visiting? Yeah, I think, you know, during COVID, I did a lot of uh, telemedicine, audio, or excuse me, uh, video visits with people in the skilled nursing facilities. And majority of those people, you know, don't understand the technology of doing a video visit. The, you know, they, they don't look at the screen. They don't understand where the voice or the noise is coming from. Um, there, there's no way they would be able to operate it, to turn it on, to get it there. So in-person, you know, visits and that sort of socialization are, are way more important than the video, I would guess, in those situations. And I think that during COVID with the social isolation that was created for those folks in the nursing facilities, that does create a lot of depression and anxiety and, um, you know, frankly, people's desire for existence, you know, it's like being in a jail, really. Do things like music therapy help with somebody who's cognitively impaired? You know, I think that I I haven't read a lot of studies on that sort of thing, but I think that we do those things for people, certainly people that are hospitalized, that are having trouble with behaviors due to their cognition or behaviors due to their illness. Um, We do play calming music and I think we think that that helps, but I don't, I haven't actually seen any studies or anything about that, but that is something that we do often. You served as a hospitalist and you also served in the Marine Corps as well as the Air Force Reserve and the Illinois National Guard. Did any of those experiences give you any kind of perspective on social vulnerability or frailty? Uh, well, certainly not not necessarily the military, uh, uh, I, I guess. Um, when the only opportunity really for seeing that sort of thing would have been I was deployed to Central America for a humanitarian uh, um, mission uh, that you see, you know, vulnerability there. However, I don't know that they see that as vulnerability. That's more a way of life for them. They don't really know that they're vulnerable and the resources make it a lot different search situation. Uh, I was deployed to war a couple of times as a critical carrier transport physician and the the destruction of cities and you know in Iraq is one thing Iraq was a rich country made destroyed by war and then Afghanistan was already a poor country where lots of times you couldn't tell what was destroyed by war and what was their way of living but certainly as a hospitalist that's I see that every day with you know family or people that come in and they're hospitalized because they just can't take care of themselves and a common reason for admission to the hospital is the family member just can't take care of them anymore. Their care needs are greater than what can be provided. 
Gotcha. Um, in your current role at Transitions, you're, you're seeing patients who are at the end of their lives and those who have chronic conditions as well. And I have to think that those people are especially vulnerable to this. Is it harder to get them the care that they need in terms of mitigating social vulnerability and frailty? Um, I think most of the people that I've seen through transitions, either with palliative and or hospice, just the fact that they have a resource like us does a lot of the mitigating for them. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, they're in a they're in a rapid decline of their life or a slow decline of their life that is quickly coming to an end. And um, to have an advocate or some people that understand that and are able to uh, provide the needs that we know are needed because of our experiences with taking care of people in these situations uh, really is the great mitigating factor. What have you found, what interventions have you found work especially well with this audience, with this cohort? The, The thing that works the best is um, being available and responsive and come when you're needed. Um, And if somebody calls, just um, listen and be there to help and or come out and actually evaluate the situation and see what's really going on. Lots of times the family members may not be able to articulate um, what is going on accurately or to uh, in a medically educated way that we can actually understand. So the presence and or following up in person or some way evaluating that with a nurse coming out or caretaker coming out or even sometimes the physician going out uh, is the best way to, you know, help that. Again, home care workers provide that sort of um, analysis as well, home health and home health care workers? So generally speaking, for example, in my palliative care role, um, if one of the patients that I'm following calls in, I'll either do a telephone visit or if it's a family member that is concerned about somebody, then we'll have a nurse or nurse's aide or some sort of caretaker go out to the home and then we can do a video visit with that person or they can sort of be our eyes and ears so that we can ask a question and get an answer that we're looking for in more specificity than what can be given sometimes by a family member or by somebody that's not medically oriented that is taking care of the person. Terrific. Dr. Stephen Norris, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks. Thank you for listening to McKnight's Home Care Newsmakers podcast. For the latest in home care news, visit McKnight'sHomeCare.com. Home